Welcome to Listen In. I'm Kevin Levangi. I'm Karina Mickelson. We're going to talk today about This Time of Better Earth, the first Canadian uh, Spanish Civil War novel. Yes, and the only Canadian Spanish Civil War novel written during the war. And it was written by Ted Allen. So this is a spoiler-heavy podcast. If you haven't read this book, then you will have the ending ruined for you. It is the final years of the Great Depression, and Bob Curtis is one of Canada's countless unemployed. Seeking a way out, he marches over the Pyrenees and enters into history by joining the International Brigades, men and women from around the world who volunteered to fight against fascism in the Spanish Civil War. His fellow volunteers present a cross-section of the North American anti-fascist movement. The French-Canadian Lucien, Doug, an African-American stockyard worker, the Bohemian Allen, Harry, a minor union organizer and family man, and Milton, a young Jewish man with military experience. The men shared the excitement and horror of defending the Spanish people against fascist bombardments, until an injury sidelines Bob to radio broadcasting work in Madrid. There, he falls in love with Lisa, a German photojournalist, and he struggles to reconcile his desire to be with her with his drive to return to his comrades at the front. Ted Allen worked as a journalist during the Spanish Civil War, and he brings his own passion and experience to his writing. This time a better earth is a war novel, a buildings roman, a love story, and a window into an important moment in Canadian history, when Canadians committed their art and their lives to an international struggle against fascism. So we're talking about uh, Ted Allen from the 1930s, not uh, Ted Allen with an E, who was one of the Fab Five from the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. This Ted Allen was born in 1916 to a Jewish family in Montreal, Quebec. As a young man, Allen left school to earn money to help supplement the family income. He worked as a correspondent for the Toronto Daily Worker and as a Montreal-based journalist for the Communist Party of Canada's publication, The Clarion. He was born Alan Herman and adopted the name Ted Allen in order to infiltrate a fascist organization and write about it. He kept the pseudonym for the remainder of his life. Allen met Dr. Norman Bethune in 1936, and in the following year, he joined the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion to fight against fascism in Spain. Once in Spain, he worked primarily as a correspondent, writing for the Daily Clarion and broadcasting from Madrid. He also worked closely with Norman Bethune at the Hispano-Canadian Institute for Blood Transfusion. Allen's experiences in Spain of fighting or writing and uh, of meeting the photographers Gerda Taro and Robert Capa formed the basis of his first novel, This Time of Better Earth. Allen went on to write television and radio scripts, which broadcast in both Canada and the United Kingdom. He wrote several plays and screenplays, uh, some for Hollywood, including the Academy Award-nominated Lies My Father Told Me from 1975, and a screenplay about Bethune, actually several screenplays about Bethune, uh, entitled Bethune, The Making of a Hero, 1990. That was uh, the one that starred uh, Donald Sutherland. Which and one that starred Donald Sutherland? <laughs> that was sorry. That was the, the, the slightly better one that starred Donald Sutherland and Helen Mirren, I believe. Alan died in Toronto at the age of seventy-nine. So this time, a better Earth is semi-autobiographical, and it is quite clear that Bob's love interest Lisa is heavily inspired by war photographer Gerda Taro. Gerda Taro was born Gerda Pohorel in nineteen ten, and was raised in a Jewish family in Stuttgart, Germany. She was imprisoned in her late teens for anti-Nazi activities, and upon her release, she fled Germany for the relative safety of Paris. She spent the rest of her short life in exile and never saw her family again. They were murdered by the Nazis during the occupation of Serbia. In Paris, she met Hungarian photographer Andrei Friedman, and he taught her photography. 
Though he trained her very well, work was scarce and they lived in relative poverty. Eventually, the two invented the persona of Robert Kappa, a name that immediately attracted professional attention. Using this name, they passed their work off as that of an American and were able to sell more photographs. This had to do with the increase in refugees in Paris at the time, and the relative disinterest or discrimination against Eastern European refugees. They also invented the name Gerda Taro. These new names, Robert Capra and Gerda Taro, recalled contemporary Hollywood stars Frank Capra and Greta Garbo. Initially, Taro and Capra both published under the credit Capra. They published for a short time under the dual credit Capra and Taro, and eventually Taro began publishing under her own assumed name. She went by Gerda Taro for the rest of her life. Taro traveled to Spain early in the war to work as a photographer. Her work was widely published and well-received. She often photographed refugees and orphans, the civilians caught in the conflict, and she did a memorable series of a crowd waiting outside the morgue to see the bodies of their loved ones after a bombardment. Taro died in July 1937 of injuries sustained in a car crash with a tank during the Republican retreat from Brunette. After her death, the French Communist Party led a mass mourning and for a time she was treated as a kind of martyr. For some time, Kappa's fame overtook Taro's memory, such that she is often remembered and referred to as Kappa's wife, though the two were never married. Recently, there has been more study of her career, spurred in part by the 2007 recovery of a suitcase in Mexico that contained hundreds of her lost negatives, and which was the subject of the 2012 documentary, The Mexican Suitcase. We'll link to an online collection of Tara's photographs and share some books about her in our show notes. It's interesting, too, that they're, you know, I want to call them stage names, not quite right, but they're, they're working <laughs> names were yeah. both pulled from Hollywood stars. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, too, but the influence of, oh, of yeah. movies kind of throughout the period and, and how a lot of the, especially the younger people, seem to kind of pull like their self-conception from what they've seen on the screen. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll talk now a little bit about the publication history. Uh, this Time a Better Earth was first published in 1939 in London by William Heinemann and in New York by William Morrow. A Canadian edition may have been published by McClellan and Stewart, but no one's been able to confirm this. Um, a new scholarly edition of the text, edited by Bart Bator, our colleague, and published by the University of Ottawa Press in 2015. Allen wrote several other pieces of journalism and fiction about the Spanish Civil War, including Lisa, A Story, and A Gun is Watered, which take up the characters of Lisa and Milton, respectively. So now we're going to try a kind of book club style where we each bring up points of discussion in the novels. So Kevin, how about you get us started? Sure. The thing that I latched onto immediately is how internationalism is represented through the diversity of the volunteers primarily uh, throughout the text so we were trying to kind of come up with the right language to talk about how each one of the characters stands in for either a different like national group or a different kind of section particularly a different section of the north americans i guess so yeah. either you know class or or ethnicity or, or something else. So um, stereotypes or archetypes kind of comes to mind. So probably the most, yeah, the most obvious ones are the men who make up kind of the group of friends around Bob. As we have Milty, who's the, you know, stereotypical, fast-talking Jewish guy who wants to be a radio broadcaster and kind of puts on the, the, the really thick Brooklyn accent in order to do that. Doug, who is, you know, African-American stockyard worker. He always is singing spirituals. Lucienne, who's kind of the 
reserved, comparatively reserved, I guess, French Canadian who doesn't, doesn't have a whole lot to say necessarily, but, uh, is always steadfast. Alan, I guess is, is a really good example of, you know, one of the thousand Americans in particular who were really known for being more intellectual compared to the Canadian uh, cadre who went. So he's, you know, the bohemian has long hair, goes into battle with poetry in his back pocket. And probably my favorite caricature is Captain Brown, who's this English Tory who volunteers to fight in Spain for his own very strange reasons. He's he's really interested in uh, preserving the British Empire, and he sees the peninsula as a as historically, you know, part of the British sphere of influence. So he says, that's why I came to Spain. I'm a diehard Tory of the old school, an imperialist if there ever was one. And that's precisely why I'm here, to protect England's imperial interests, even though some of my Tory friends have forgotten their policy regarding the peninsula. <laughs> Can you imagine how much work it would be to defend British imperialism? <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, you, you're yeah, a one-man one man imperialist <laughs> army, and you're also constantly arguing with like literally 40,000 communists <laughs> like that's you've put yourself in that position um and he's this hilarious uh, stereotype who wants to have really nice wine with dinner and comes wearing a dinner jacket because he wants to impress lisa he's very funny i think there's also a very similar character in uh the hemingway book from the bell tolls I, th- I think there is which is suggesting to me that there may well have been a real person. Well, one of our volunteers was a conservative. Yeah, right? yeah, which is a funny one. Yeah. This is the period, I guess, where, like, the consolidation of, like, Democrat, Republican, like, liberal conservative starts to actually look like it does today. So that, that's even weirder because, you know, there, there's a time period a few years prior to this where it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, in this case, he's literally a Tory. Like, I don't know how that... Anyway. Yeah, there's a few other ways in which internationalism are, are presented throughout the text the probably the the best there's a couple of really good ones i guess right at the beginning of the text when they get to this very smelly and horrible barracks <laughs> and they're they're staying there you know they said no one's changed out the latrines since the romans basically is <laughs> kind of their their what they decide is is the reason why it smells so bad and they're they're looking at all the different inscriptions that have been scratched on the walls in quote every language under the sun and there's this kind of grim resolve that there's some words of encouragement from people who've been there before them and you know a huge a huge quote on the wall that says something along the lines of sure this place stinks but a lot of things do in the world like (laughs) that's that's why we're here basically uh, which i thought was pretty good and then there's probably my favorite scene throughout the entire book they have this concert you know a whole bunch of the volunteers who all just arrived at the same time pack in to this concert hall they start singing in their various different languages. At one point, I think there are 11 different languages being sung of the Internationale. And, you know, you can tell Alan knows he's working with some good material here. Like, you, you can, you can, <laughs> everyone feels like, I think everyone in the room has, you know, their hair standing on end. And yeah. if you're if you're a big nerd like me, that might also happen to you while reading it. <laughs> I wonder what other songs they sang. Karina <laughs> uh, has been giving me a consistently hard time about always bringing up the Peapog Soldiers whenever I get a chance on this podcast or in real life. And they do sing that song in this, <laughs> in this concert. And then, yeah, Doug also gets up and sings some like traditionally black spirituals, which is, is both kind of a really interesting part for a few reasons, I guess. And one of them is that Alan resists the temptation to put anyone, like everyone's speaking with an accent of, of various different kinds. And he resists the temptation to 
like spell that out in the text. You know what I mean? Like yeah. no one, no one is, is written in, in dialect except yeah. for when they sing and then everyone's, yeah. so there's, there's this kind of, yeah, like stereotypical dialect that Doug has that's not the best. Anyway, so yeah, we, we can talk about how some of these portrayals are, are definitely like racist in, in their own way, but it's somewhat mitigated because they're so sympathetic and they're meant to represent these larger national groups in a, in a, in a way that really like foreground solidarity. So Mm -hmm. it's a, there's definitely a tension there that you can, you can explore. Yeah. It's never, it's never meant to be diminishing, I guess, but it's still, especially Milty and Doug end up with these portrayals that are not, not so great. Yeah. This fits in well, I guess, talking about the, the stereotypical portrayal of, of, Doug fits in well here because immediately after they leave the concert hall there's this kind of extended scene where Doug runs into some of the local people particularly the children who think he's a moor they think he's one of the Moroccan soldiers who are uh, fighting with Franco and he's kind of horrified by this I think there's there's the immediately practical concern that this could land you in he I guess at one point he laughs and says like oh I could get shot on the front lines because they won't know who I am in this case, he's just trying to teach the kids, like, no, no, I'm, I'm a comrade. I'm, you know, North American comrade. I'm, I'm, not fighting against you. And, and it takes a little while. And he exchanges mm-hmm. some chocolate and comes. But it's kind of a good, a good scene in the sense that you, you don't, you know, when we we've talked before about Oliver Law and the mm-hmm. like the the real racism that was present in the International Brigades. Yeah, that doesn't get really directly addressed here, but it does get hinted at that there are. It's not perfect. Like it's not a seamless integration of all these, all these you know international volunteers who don't have any national differences, don't have any you know, discriminatory problems yeah. or anything like that. So, so I think that yeah, that's it's interesting that that makes an appearance and it's it, it's a pretty decent moment that's recurring throughout. Is Doug running into some trouble with mm-hmm. the locals who've I don't think ever seen a black person before is is one of the problems that he runs into. Yeah, and then of course other practical concerns. Uh, of internationalism, Bob ends up getting this radio job because he can speak American. They call it because <laughs> he he can he can do the the propaganda work with a North American accent. There's also a, the interesting moment where Kenneth, who's one of the other reporters who works in the bullpen above Bob's uh, radio station, he compares the word Ethiopia because he also covered the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, mm-hmm. and he remarks after the internationals capture so much Italian equipment that it's very much the same equipment that they were using in Ethiopia. It's the same rifles. It's the same, the same trucks, that sort of thing. There's no kind of explicit parallels. I don't think between Ethiopia and Spain spelled out in this book. There are, they yeah. talk a little bit about the war in China yeah. and about the coming world war that everyone knows is on the way. But this is one example where you do see like, Oh, we're literally fighting the same battles because yeah. they're, yeah. Yeah. And then I guess the last really good example of, of how the, the volunteers are used to stand in for other other people, other classes, other national groups. Bob, in one of his long kind of paragraph speeches to Lisa, he's explaining how he got radicalized in the various jobs he worked as a, as a kid. And then he resolves at the end, my so-called youth is almost a general biography of the youth of America. <laughs> Just in case you missed that that's what was going on there. <laughs> he, he's your everyman. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So before I get into my discussion point, I just want to bring up a huge point of contention with you and me, Kevin, <laughs> is that Ted Allen fictionalized himself and gave that character the name Bob. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we're not fighting about this. We, we, no, we're we no. on the same page here. <laughs> yeah, we're on the is... same page. 
And no offense to any Bobs among our listeners, but it's not the heroic name that I would choose for myself. Right. Well, in Hemingway, also cho- he's also Bob, right? He's Robert Jordan. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting that he names Alan Alan because Alan is his actual name. Yeah. Like, that is a good point, yeah. <laughs> I never thought about that. Maybe he, like, there's a part of him that wants to be that intellectual, but also, like... But he's definitely Bob. Yeah, like, <laughs> he's a Bob. He's, he's Bob with, like, fewer problems. Is it, or, or the other way around, I guess. Like, like his, the fictionalized self is, like, he has fewer issues. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's, there's no... There's no competition for, for Lisa's affection. There's yeah. no, like, the whole blood transfusion units, like... <laughs> His, like, torrid mentor mentoring relationship with Norman Bethune. Yeah, that just gets there. out of there, and it's like, um, we're going to streamline this. And keep yeah, it. so, in real life, Ted Allen worked with Norman Bethune. They had a pretty tense friendship, mm-hmm. as Norman Bethune had with most people. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't the easiest person to be friends with. And in real life... Ted Allen and Gerda Taro may have been romantically involved. She was also romantically involved with Robert Kappa at that time. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. He was there when she died, right? That's my... Ted yeah. Allen was there when she died, yeah. yeah. Robert Kappa was in Paris. Yeah. So when we when Bob and Lisa talk about Lisa going to Paris, Gerda was going to join Robert Kappa. <laughs> right. Whereas Lisa is going to, like, yearn for Bob. <laughs> so he uh, writes out his romantic rival... Um, assuming that there was anything romantic going on between him and Gerda Taro. Who knows? You can't blame him too much, I guess. It's a good <laughs> it's a good story. If, if it happened to you, you'd want to write it down, yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> I would. <laughs> Once I made Kevin a meme that had Bob from Bob's Burgers and said this time for Gerda, and I was really proud of it. I don't know what Kevin thought of it, but it was one of my crowning achievements. You, you made, yeah, you, you made me another one about Ted Allen from Queer Eye, too. <laughs> this time I queer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so one thing I want to talk about is the character of Lisa. And I could talk about this forever, and I wrote a thesis chapter on it, so <laughs> I have talked about it forever. But I find her a really interesting character because on the one hand, she is based on a real person. And on the other hand, she kind of fits into a set of tropes. Emily Robbins Sharp, in her article Traders in Love, talks about uh, the kind of typical romance narrative of the Spanish Civil War novel. So she writes, The white, gentile, North American male protagonist travels to Spain as a volunteer soldier and enters into a relationship with a woman from another country. Their growing romance prevents him from fully committing to his leftist politics. But that rather than reject her, he escapes the relationship through a deus ex machina. Injury, his, or death, hers, or some other war-related catastrophe. Freed of his romantic obligations, the male protagonist re-enters the war with renewed commitment to self-sacrifice on behalf of the Republic. So, this kind of sense that Lisa and characters like her are splitting the attention of the anti-fascist male protagonist so they can't be in love and in committed to anti-fascism in the ways that they want to. It's kind of like this either-or situation. And that the women have to often die in order for the men to fully achieve their anti-fascism is a little bit uh, problematic. And it fits into other tropes in movies and video games, including much more toned-down version of the woman in the refrigerator, which has uh, women, usually wives or daughters, being killed off early in a story so that 
the men in their life have the motivation to complete their kind of hero's quest. And it's also kind of, I think, a version of the manic pixie dream girl trope, which was uh, defined by Nathan Rubin in 2007 to describe romantic comedies like Garden State and Elizabethtown and 500 Days of Summer, in which a very kooky and adorable and dreamy girl um, helps the man work through his shit without really having her own agency or storyline. So I've been thinking about if this is a trope, would it, what would it be called? What did we come up with? The tragic lady Tra- comrade? Tragic dream lady comrade or tragic something? Tragic dream lady comrade. So there's this sense that Lisa is kind of getting in the way or something? No, it's that's definitely there. And it's very strange because it's not like she's sitting around at home like yes. it doesn't even fit in the, in the normal sort of trope where like she's you know either passively involved in the conflict or staying at home and just like removed from it entirely like she's contributing in a big way to anti-fascist yeah she's eager to get to the front yeah. and so there's a lot of anxiety around her being at the front so miriam cook in her book women in the war story writes about kind of the masculine masculinization of space around uh front lines So she writes, the army used to be the place where boys were sent to become men. Soldiers were assured their masculinity because the physical space they occupied was free of women. So the sense that the front is secured (laughs) through the absence of women. So at one point, Lisa is arguing with a soldier who says that the lady can't go up now to the front. And she clarifies that she's a photographer, not a lady. He retorts that the colonel says, no dames at the front unless it's absolutely quiet and he assures Bob that he can go to the front but I'm sorry about the lady comrade so in this conversation he's not addressing Lisa even though Lisa is addressing him he's addressing Bob and Bob is very much allowed to go into this kind of like dangerous uh, wartime space but Lisa is uh, supposed to stay out of it and Lisa really disagrees with this saying stop calling me lady comrade call me comrade that is enough we talked a little bit before about how there was quite a bit of anxiety about women participating in battle at various mm-hmm. points in the Spanish Civil War as well, because the the kind of hastily thrown together militias had a lot of women involved in them in the early stages of the war. As the, the Spanish Republican military forces became more professionalized, women were excluded from frontline uh, duty and, mm-hmm. and not allowed to fight anymore. Yeah, um, they were kind of ushered to the home front. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even though... The French was very much, I mean, it wasn't like Madrid or Barcelona were safer places no. to be. No. <laughs> yeah, and for and for the that's a good point. For the first time, I would say, I guess the the First World War, yeah. in certain cases, but but even if you were far behind the lines in in Spain or during the Second World War, you weren't safe, right? Because of, you know the new technologies of of bombers and that sort of thing. So that's a new. Kind of a new terror that civilians had to contend with. Yeah, totally. So the way I kind of think about this book is that Lisa has this very confident anti-fascism. She's very much reconciled her femininity. Like, she wears lipstick and has cute outfits and cute hair and (laughs) great shoes, which she eventually trades in for more practical shoes. Mm -hmm. But... (laughs) Um, she's inconveniently hot it's always an issue all the guys are like wow thinks about having children like things like that (laughs) she has this very feminine side that she has happily reconciled with her anti-fascism whereas bob is really struggling to figure out what it means to be an anti-fascist man 
And that is related to the military, to fighting, to being with other men, homosociality. And Lisa is inconvenient in that sense. Definitely. Her, the combination of kind of her, you know, leading woman, good looks. And then you don't really hear anything about Bob mm-hmm. uh, being, you know. No idea what Bob looks He's like. sort of a zero, en- like, non-entity. Yeah. Uh, apparently he looks a little better when he grows a beard out. Lisa likes that. You, yeah. hear, you hear that at one point. but uh, <laughs> So that, that just relates to what's come up throughout the text is, like I said earlier, the self-conception of, of the various characters relying heavily on their relationship to the big screen uh, mm-hmm. movies. Um, Milty, right at the beginning, says, I'm the comic relief, <laughs> which he is. Yeah, yeah. I get yeah. He's constantly going into these little radio broadcasts whenever he gets to, gets a second. Like in, you know, in the trenches, he has a, a gas mask set up that looks like a microphone and he's, you know, uh, making things a little more funny for everybody. Uh, one of the other first things that they do when they get to Spain is the various, uh, like the five or six core volunteers go to the movies, they see some newsreels, and then they see Mickey Mouse in Spanish, which is sort of a disorienting experience, I guess, because they're, they're you know, someone you're so familiar with, a character you know so well, mm-hmm. all of a sudden speaking to you in a language you don't understand. <laughs> and then, yeah, throughout, throughout it gets a little more uh, explicit in the way that, you know, the relationship to the war and to each other and two concepts of heroism uh, relies really heavily on what you see in the movies because Bob gets to the front for the first time most of the way through the novel and says... No Man's Land. I saw it in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I like your delivery. Yeah, well, you know, he's, he's staring into the sun, as he says. He's squinting, looking off to the distance as he says that, I'm sure. And yeah, he's, he's you know, kicking rocks and, and thinking about how he just found out that one of his friends is dead and someone else has been seriously wounded. And he says, the thing becomes more and more unreal, I said after a while. The whole goddamn business, the olive trees, the sun, the vineyards, the attack, men getting killed, Harry and Milty, you and me. Lisa laughed. It's real. You're not sitting in a movie. He later like talks about how, you know, or yeah, one of the other one of the other characters notes that like when someone dies, it looks exactly like it does in the movies. You know, they bend over, they flop, they land. And then that leads to kind of the other, the last long extended conversation about fiction versus reality, in which they both, especially Lisa, declares that writers are liars. You know, the strong silent men that you see in, on the screen aren't aren't actually real. Those kind of supermen, those heroes aren't actual, aren't actual people. But then Harry at a different point kind of makes the point that there are heroes. He wants, he wants to say that there are heroes. Every, every person on the front line has been heroic in one way or another, but there's no, there are no kind of superheroes. Mm -hmm. So there's this constant balancing, I guess, of the expectations that you've been, been presented to you in popular media and then the way in which you actually live your life on the front lines. Um, Which makes it sound like it's a, you know, when, when you see the expectations of popular media, you expect to be talking about like Disney movies, not like <laughs> John Wayne. I and mean, obviously John Wayne comes later, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like the yeah. heroic war movies. And yeah. And it is interesting because the characters that Bob spends time with are so young, like mm-hmm. none of them participated in the first world war. That's interesting. So yeah. movies are their primary uh, model for what war is like, whereas... There's a novel by June Hutton called Underground that has a protagonist. It's a Canadian Spanish Civil War novel, and the protagonist fights in the First World War and then in the Spanish Civil War, and he fights with several older volunteers and has a lot of trauma from the First World War that comes back, that is recalled. They're they're definitely comparatively blank slates, too. Yeah, there's like a generational difference. 
Yeah, and it would, and the characters are meant to be representative in, in one way, but they're not. Like you know, we've spent so much time with the volunteer database now that we know that they're not really representative. Mm-hmm. None of them are Ukrainian or Finnish, and <laughs> and none, none of them fought in. Well, you we don't know, know what Harry's last name is. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so that's. I guess it's interesting that that because there's the depiction of this is kind of the young man's game. This, mm-hmm. I think that has a lot to do with Alan's experience. I would say. Yeah, um, being in Spain when he was 21. Mm-hmm. And not really being on the lines. Yeah. In the way that, like, a lot of the other guys were. Had very had, you know, effectively no break for the year and a half, two years that they were there. Yeah, so they didn't have training. They talk about how they're sent yeah. almost directly to the front with no training. So movies, I guess, are their reference point. Mm-hmm. Like, they haven't been drilled on what it's going to be like to be at the front and how they should behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's another reason why they rely so heavily on it. Yeah. yeah. And I guess we... It was like the popular medium of the age. Yeah. And in a, in a sense, you know, we've read some of the, the volunteer POW accounts. You get, a, you get a real sense of everyone's level of literacy who is involved in that. And yeah. the likelihood of, of you having the time or the ability or the money to sit down and thumb through a whole bunch of novels is, is maybe... Unless you're unemployed and the library's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it is funny to think that during the Great Depression, people with no disposable, limited disposable income or with chronic unemployment could go to the movies because mm-hmm. now movies are so prohibitively expensive right. <laughs> right. that they're not yeah. something that you can do regularly. Definitely. I don't know. No, that is interesting, yeah. We'll let you in on the secret that we're re-recording this because we... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we recorded this yesterday and I'm sure it was brilliant, but the recording cut it down to half its length and took out words here and there and it was garbled. (laughs) It wasn't as good, but it was more organic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Certified organic podcasting. Yeah, it is interesting that, you know, photography is obviously such a huge part of this because Lisa is a photographer and she's mm-hmm. constantly talking to the various men who uh, want to impress her about uh, the cameras <laughs> that they owned at various points. So yeah, the, the strange thing about the photography in, in the book is that as much as it's something that Lisa engages in, it's not, otherwise it doesn't really affect any of the characters. Like you never see any of, any of Lisa's photographs, like they're never developed and then presented in any way. You hear about what she's taking pictures of, but that's it. Yeah. Although, and I mean, there is a discourse around witnessing because they watch the breadline get bombed. Yeah. And they see the woman's child die. And Lisa really wants to take a photograph, mm-hmm. but like Bob pulls her away. And I think she's very much in shock in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's such an interesting. If you read about Robert Kappa and Gerda Tarot, they were so innovative in terms of photography. And they took a lot of risks. And there's like a famous Robert Kappa quote about like, uh, you have to get close to get the best photos. I should really know that quote. It would be a lot more useful. And of course, that closeness killed them both. Kappa died in another, shooting another conflict. Did he die in Vietnam? In like Vietnam, but in the fifth, like the first Vietnam, like with oh, okay. the yeah, the I think you're French. right. Uh, we'll link, uh, I'll post about a graphic novel about Robert Kappa yeah. if you want to do some reading on him. He died in Vietnam in 1954. 
Yeah. So, whereas writing and broadcasting can be fairly safe <laughs> works, and photography has a lot more risk to it and a lot more involvement, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. I was looking for the, the copy of the book because I was just thinking about the advance on Malaga comes up at one point, which is really interesting because those are probably like one of my favorite things that we have digitized on the website is the the crime on the road, oh, yeah. which is the yeah. We'll definitely link to that. It's a um, little a pamphlet put together of photographs taken by I believe Hazen Seiss and then a text written by Norman Bethune about what they called the crime on the road, which was fascist advance on Malaga, and then the, which was you know kind of Republican held and everyone who was left, all the soldiers left first, and then the elderly and a lot of women and a huge number of children mm-hmm. tried to walk 100 kilometers along a road to get to Almeria before the, the like, I think it was particularly Italian, like black shirts were following close behind and they were being shelled from the road and then mm-hmm. there was aerial bombardment. So this makes it... And then they were shelled in Almeria. Yeah, yeah. And Bethune and Seiss and a couple of other volunteers from the... The blood transfusion unit took the ambulances and were picking up people as they went. And it's, it's really, it's some of Bethune's best writing. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking and the images are really heartbreaking. Yeah, I think that's something we can talk about is that the photographs that came out of this war were really shocking. So photographs of dead children after bombings on civilians uh, were very, like, circulated everywhere. Like, they came up in the Daily Clarion and all the newspapers... They still come up in pamphlets in Britain and France. Yeah. Robert Kappa's Falling Soldier, his most famous mm-hmm. photograph, uh, was taken during the Spanish Civil War. Gerda Terrell has a very famous photograph of a miliciana, one of the women who was fighting with the militia, that you have will probably recognize yeah. if we post it. Like, Definitely. This war was well seen, not right. just in leftist newspapers, but in other newspapers as well. And there's some, it's, it's interesting because the, the war always gets credit or infamy, I guess, as the first like terror bombing of populations, which is not actually true. I know really? the, yeah, in uh, Susan Sontag's Regarding the Pain of Others, I think it is, she talks about the like terror bombing. The Spanish Civil War gets like credit as being the first time that civilians were terror bombed, but mm-hmm. it was actually the Royal Air Force in, uh, I guess, what would have been Mesopotamia, but what's now Iraq. Mm-hmm. But those, there were no, there were no popular images of that that circulated, and even if they had, it would have, I think, probably resonated differently. It wasn't in Europe. Yeah. It wasn't people who would be, you know, identified as white uh, were the victims. So yeah, that's always always kind of a constant issue that you run into when you're talking about the Spanish Civil War. Is why did this one become such a of you know such historical interest? Mm-hmm. So lots of. Uh, so the Spanish Civil War has a pretty intense visual legacy, mm-hmm. including films like Heart of Spain and art like Guernica, um, and photography was a big part of that. Uh, Ted Allen doesn't engage with that that deeply. Which um, in a sense makes sense because this is so... He wouldn't have been engaging with it deeply while he was in Spain, right? He wasn't, yeah, he, he wasn't seeing yeah, those he, images circulating. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. That is actually I hadn't considered that. Is that he's he was there for the production of a lot of these yeah, images, but, but it wouldn't for there the, for the reception of them. Yeah, he didn't consume them in the same way. Yeah. Do we have anything else to talk about? I think we covered most things that we yeah. that we talked about yesterday. <laughs> so this is a good book. 
we yeah. should read it. Mm-hmm. I hope you've already read it and we didn't spoil it for you. <laughs> <laughs> he also, I don't know if we mentioned it this time, that he also wrote The Scalpel, the Sword, the story of Dr. Norman Bethune, which was mm, the yes. first Bethune biography. And perhaps the most controversial. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening and uh, no pass around. Today's episode was written and produced by Kevin Levangie and Karina Mickelson and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our theme song was Libertad by Iriarte and Pezzoa. As always, you can find all the links and names of things we referenced in this episode on our show notes at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. And you can get in touch with us via our website or on Twitter at CanadaSCW. Next episode, Kevin will be talking about the military experience of the Canadian volunteers. So listen in.